Mutants. Since the discovery of their existence, they have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain, or simply a new species of humanity fighting for their share of the world? Either way, it is an historical fact. Sharing the world has never been humanity's defining attribute. Suffering Steve Ditko! What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. <laughs> Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week we are continuing our X-Men coverage for the summer with Uncanny X-Men Annual 2001. Now, one might assume that with the name 2001 in it, that means that this annual came out in 2001. That's not true. Because they had a whole year to put it out, and they still managed to be late, and this came out in January of 2002. We will nonetheless be continuing my desire to spotlight early 2000s X-Men. This issue is by writer Joe Casey and artist Ashley Wood, with lettering by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and... Context-wise, time-wise, this is basically happening at the point in the X office where Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely on New X-Men started up less than a year ago, and that's going strong. You have Claremont and LaRocca on Extreme. You have the Exiles. You have the Milligan all-red X4, so it'll become Ecstatics. There's a bunch of exciting stuff going on in this period. And in the midst of that, you have the Joe Casey run on Uncanny. The art teams throughout it are very inconsistent. They change up a lot. But I went with this issue for a few different reasons. One, it's an annual. You can read it on its own and it works well enough on its own. It's not like a long multi-issue arc. I thought a one-and-done would be nice. And I've always liked the art in this a lot. Um, We'll talk more about the Ashley Wood work as we get into it. But beyond the sort of interesting time period that this hits within and the unique aspect of the art, right off the bat we need to address the unique aspect of the printing and the orientation because this was one of three X-Men annuals that year that were printed in what they called Marvel Scope, which basically means that the staples for the comic were put on the shorter length rather than the longer length. 
So it's the same size as a normal standard American comic, but you read its landscape as opposed to horizontally. So the action sort of has more of a widescreen type of feel to it, which I suppose is as good of a place to start as anywhere else. What did you think of the Marvel scope of it all? This feels like the last time Marvel prioritized reading something in a single issue because I've read the new X-Men annual in the trade and it is an absolutely ghastly experience that has severely hurt that story for me, which I think is a good one, but like having to, it doesn't work in a collection with other books that uh, like the way you have to flip the pages is a real pain in the ass. But with the staples on the side, it's, it's like a picture book, like a kid's picture book. In that it it just works, you know. Like this is, this works really well for this. It doesn't look when it's collected, but I, I dig it. It's neat seeing these characters in a different aspect ratio. I agree. Yeah, I would second what you said about like the issues of reprinting, and I agree that the new X Men annual that does the same thing. In trade format, that is a pain in the ass, yeah. But if you can get just like... Especially the big omnibus. Oh, yeah. Where everything's a pain because it's heavy and then you have to turn it around. Yeah, at least when it's like the normal way up, I feel like the omnibus sits better. But it's just too thick to have like the other direction while you're trying to read it. Especially since it's early on in the run and so suddenly, like, if you're trying to look at the top panel, you have to hold that up and change it. Like, you can't sit it the way you would normally sit, like, a book like that in your lap or something. I don't know, I find it much trickier to work with. But, you know, you, you we have the physical, which, by the way, thank you for the physical. You're welcome. Um, because I enjoyed it a lot more than I would have reading this on even the iPad that is at least better than a physical, like, omnibus or even a trade for this sort of thing but also because the very first thing in it is an ad for my childhood crash bandicoot game wrath of cortex which i realized was not a good crash bandicoot game but is the one that i i, I liked the character from and it is the one i have the nostalgia for so that's another good little time context detail yeah we have the crash bandicoot ad we have some more miscellaneous video game ads, and it wouldn't be a comic from the early 2000s if we didn't have a back cover inside ad saying tobacco is wacko if you're a teen. <laughs> With that weird, like, mixed media collage, like Angela Anaconda nightmare person style for the girl that's smoking. I think the face is the Mona Lisa. You might be right. Yeah, it's giving that. Huh. It's hard to tell about the smile or the eyes, but like the nose and the chin look very, um, like, very familiar. Yeah. In the middle of the issue, we also have one of those pages that you haven't seen in comics now for like 20 years, where it's like an order form with the list of all of the ongoing Marvel comics at the time and the place to like write in your name and be like, I mail this in. I'm going to either cut out the page or photocopy it 
and mail in my order for my subscription for these ongoing comics back when they bothered with that at all and it wasn't all digital and also back when a comic could conceivably last longer than 12 issues and therefore it would make sense to get a subscription to it. Spider-Girl was still being published. Also, I really like the ratio of X-Men to Avengers books. That's how that ratio should always look. By Avengers books, you mean Avenger books singular and then just like the solo titles. There's yeah. no mighty and new and dark and secret and uncanny. Well, you've got Thunderbolts in there, which I'm like, Thunderbolts is the other one you should have. I still honestly have never read any Thunderbolts at all. The original run is pretty neat. I like the Busiek run. Um, The run right after it, which I think is Nisieza, is generally quite good. Um, except for one absolutely insane decision that I'm just incredibly confused by, um, that everyone else has since ignored, so you don't have to worry about it anymore. But uh, <laughs> it's 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 good. It's um, I I mean you know there's there's the obvious there's the plot twist that I think everybody knows that is the premise of Thunderbolts, and I think that it leads to a good comic. Okay, and it's Bagley art for like years, and I'm very biased in favor of Bagley art. That's good. Yeah, Bagley's good. Um, he like drew the whole Busick run and I think the whole Nicieza run as well. We love comics actually being allowed to have artistic consistency. It's always shocking when you come across it. Like nowadays, I'm surprised when an artist is on a book for six issues straight. Not even Jurassic League could give that to you. No, I the whole point of that book was the fucking art. And then there was a fill-in issue. I'm like, it was a six-issue miniseries. Why didn't you just give them the time to do it? Like, what the fuck? The only reason I'm reading this is because I like this art. And, you know, dinosaurs. But, like, it's not dinosaurs enough for me to not care about the art. The plot definitely wasn't there. So, like, I'm not excited or interested. And it's not like the the, the fill-in artist who... I, I'm sure had to do some last minute shit. It didn't look very good. And it looked very much like they were someone who doesn't normally draw. I wish I could remember any artists' names right now, but it looked like they didn't normally draw in the style that the rest of the series is drawn in, but they were trying to for this. So they didn't look too out of place, which just made it look more out of place. There's just like a point where you turn the page you're like, oh God, what is this? Why are you drawing like this? Yeah. They should bring back Marvel Knights. So I'm just looking at this ad, and I like the, the this seems like a good, a good Marvel offering, really. Yeah, it is a fun time capsule, like both here and then like anytime I read an old floppy from the 80s or 90s, it's always kind of cool to take a look and see what like the outliers are of just like, oh, yeah, they had an ongoing ALF comic in the 80s for some reason. But... It was big in the 80s, I guess. I don't I don't <laughs> I don't get the appeal, but apparently. Me either. But part of why I ordered you the physical copy too was that while this is available to read on Marvel Unlimited, I concur that it's like a better format for reprinting it than like in the middle of a trade full of other stuff. But the thing is that 
reading it on Marvel Unlimited doesn't really give you the sense of what actually constitutes a page. Because with the whole, like, wide sprawling, widescreen panoramic effect of it all, Wood makes, like, heavy use of two-page spreads and of just, like, dividing the pages up in a way that I think is really cool and largely works. But the app, because it's designed for just like having more or less one image, one page on the screen at a time, the way that the app divides it into pages isn't actually completely true to the physical pages. So there will be like pages that are split into two pages on the app because that's just how they're trying to like divide the visual information up. And I think with as unique of a printing thing like this as it is, I think it's cool to be able to hold it in your hand and really get the feel of the experiment more in a way as it was actually intended versus any of the reprintings that all have their own sort of issues. Yeah, the, this that's why I'm like, this is a very, very cool experiment, and I'm really like, it's neat that they did this, but also because, you know, the way most of these things are eventually going to be read is the reprints. They, I'm glad that they've stopped doing this. Unless they do it for a whole book, and then the book can be collected like this, you know? Like, if it's I... going in a collection, it should all be the same format. I'd be down for a comic that just looks like this for the whole run. There was a series, I believe it came out last year. I believe it was published by Image. There's a series called Echo Lands that's entirely published in this format. And the trade is in that format, too, where it's like a hardcover, but it's longer than it is tall. And it just like replicates Perfect. the whole thing that way. I know Frank Miller's done it a bunch, but I'm not reading those ones. So I'm glad that there's other people. Yeah. Do I want to read 300 or... um? Whatever the hell that really racist one is about the fake Batman. The way that that could probably apply to multiple ones, too, because it's Frank well, Miller. Yeah, to be honest, I think of his Batman as fake Batman in nearly all of the stuff he's written anyway. But, like, no, there was this, oh, this really specific... Anyway, we're off track complaining about Frank Miller. Uh, so I really like the opening page of this. It's really fucking uh, cool, isn't it? You, you know what it looks like? And, and this includes like the graphic design of it. It looks like the pages we get now. Yeah, the like in, opening sort of like text previously like infographic pages. Yeah, well, specifically the infographics that we get in X-Men comics at the moment, like ever since Hawkspox. Um, it might even be the same font used for the uh, X-Men Absolute Pro Progeny like title font. I'd need to check. But like it's vibing similarly with the um the neat squares and like the just the way the text is laid out, the use of um symbols that like are just there to provide like graphical elements, like the um the two little uh, the sideways arrow, I can't remember the name right now. They do that a lot in um, the infographics that they certainly in Dawn of X they were doing that a lot. They the the 
consistency in the way those are styled has gone down a lot since Dawn of X, unfortunately, for the infographics and the X line, but that applies to all the graphical design decisions in the X line since about halfway through Reign of X for some reason, so... Yeah. But I like it. This is this is a really nice touch. Yeah, it's like listeners on like the far left, they have just like a sliver with the indicia and the credits for writer, artist, letterer, editors, all of that. And that's all just sort of in this horizontal orange bar that separates it out from the rest of the page, which is a like a white creamish color. And the majority of it is this three by two grid of like headshots of varying degrees of like focus and zoom in on basically the roster just right up front. It's giving us, these are the X-Men in this book and each one has a sliver of text just giving you their name, code name, and their powers. And the X-Men in this book, we have Iceman, Archangel, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Chamber, and Stacy X. Which It's a great lineup. I fucking love this team. Like, it's really fucking cool. <laughs> It's it, very funny that Wolverine is here and on New X-Men. Oh, yeah, just fully. He's going to be in multiple books. Like, this isn't the height of it. Like, it's going to get worse. But we do see definitely the start here of we're just going to throw him all over the place. He's not yet also in all of the Avengers teams. But within a couple years, he will be. Yeah, once he's on, like, Avengers as well, that's when Wolverine just got silly. Yeah, it's really fun. It hits a lot of boxes for me, just in that I love basically all of these characters, so it's very tailor-made to my personal preferences. But even beyond that bias, I appreciate just sort of the fun mix we have going here. Because you've got a third of the team is from the O5. You have Bobby and Warren. Then another third is from Giant Size with Kurt and Logan. And then the last third is like the newbies of the team. Between Chamber having just graduated up to the X-Men with Generation X falling apart. And then you have Stacey X who... If there are any listeners who don't know who Stacy X is, Stacy X is the type of character who is really cool and also could have only been created at very specific times in publishing history. But she is a literal mutant former sex worker and her powers are pheromone control. And also she's, like, scaly. She has, like, a semi-reptilian thing going on. Yeah, but it's it's a lot cooler than, like, regular thermal controllers because, like, she touches you and she can, like, make you feel all kinds of different things. And it's, like, specifically with her touch, right? Like, she can't do it necessarily from a distance. I think you're right. I'm not a Stacy expert, but I think that's right. I'm trying to remember the Cerebra episode because I, I, this is, I think, the first time I've read her in a book aside from 
like way of x which way of x frankly doesn't count because she's just kind of that could be anyone almost yeah she is such a brief character in publication because it's really like she gets brought in in the joe casey run and then immediately written out at the start of the chuck austin and I'm sure there's probably some cameo somewhere before Krakoa, but I can't even think of where. Like, she was basically in limbo for 20 years, and even now she's just been a pretty minor character. This one I do know. I know where she showed up. It was New Warriors. For fuck's sake. The one the one with the team of mutants, like, mutants who got depowered in the decimation. The legendarily bad New Warriors. My god. But this is pre that. This is when Stacy X is cool. Um, Before she got decimated. Yeah. Which, on the topic of pre decimation, this is before Marvel editorial was like, there's too many mutants. Let's deal with the minority metaphor book by depowering them all. Because what could be a better idea than taking our cultural metaphor and genociding them we can't go on a tirade about house of them but my fucking god the 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 remaining lecture hall of this minority group literally all 198 of them all 198 of them literally for every time they added another character to that list because they're like oh we didn't think of this one and we want to use them because they made the very bold move of being like okay, we have this list up front and then kept being like, oh shit, wait. What do you mean this writer wants to use Polaris? Yeah, but this is in that early 2000s period where a lot of the books are really interested in dealing with the idea of mutant subculture and mutant human relations from that angle. You know, you have everything the Morrison Quietly book is doing with the intro of a Jumbo Carnation and the Quentin Choir conflicts and mutant identity and all of that. You've got the X-Force and X-Statics of it all with the, like, mutant celebrity angle. And here in this book, the central conflict, essentially, or opening plot point, is that someone is extracting mutant DNA and making drugs out of it that they are selling to young people at these raves. And they're essentially taking drugs that are temporary power bestowers because the people who take them get a temporary high during which they are literally mutating and getting mutant powers, but the effects only last for a matter of hours. And naturally, this is a horrendous thing to put the body through, and a lot of people are dying because they're mutating their fucking bodies in highly experimental drugs. Is this MGH? I think it's separate. I don't think they ever so specifically similar. call it that. And I don't think it ties into like the Morrison like push stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a this isn't push because push is a drug that's aimed at mutants. 
but like MGH is is like such a similar concept. I'm like, did did this happen when and then that happened, or is this like what leads to MGH? Because I, I I mean I know that from Young Avengers more than anything else. I'm not a hundred percent certain, but I think this is a separate thing narratively. But you're right that it's definitely hitting like the same conceptual box. Right down to like made f- literally from mutants, yeah, like direct genetic samples, which like MGH, I think, is like made that way, yeah. Where should we start? Um, would you like to start talking about the characters, like the X Men, their interactions? Would you like to dive into the vanisher of it all, or do you have any particular? first place you'd like to start with like the art or anything i'll open it to you let's get into the vanisher because that's cool and i feel like we, we've, we've been well we've been on the like vibe and the art and stuff more than the the plot so talking about the vanisher i think will make us talk about the plot listeners if you are in the 99 percent of the human populace who has probably consumed plenty of x-men media and still doesn't know who the vanisher is that's understandable the vanisher aka telford porter was the villain in x-men issue number two not the (laughs) 90s x-men but specifically the 60s the second ever issue of the x-men the vanisher was a more or less one-off You know, he makes a few appearances later on throughout the years, but very minor villain whose power was teleportation. And he was just this silly looking bald man in like a scaly hooded outfit who tried stealing classified federal documents and the X-Men stopped him. And Charles Xavier mind-wiped him so fiercely that he forgot who the fuck he was. And that's how his first story went. And eventually, he learned again who he was. But this is a very deep-cut poll. I, um, i forgotten that was his name. Telford Porter. Yeah. The teleporter. I, I had i forgotten that the X-Men's first teleporter character is called Telford Porter. And now I wish I could go back in time and give Jack Kirby and Stanley high fives. Yeah. Listeners... I mean, because like he's named in the dialogue, so who knows which one of them came up with that. So just a high five to both. Yeah. Listeners, if you don't already know, I think it's worth giving a Google to see what his 60s costume looks like, because even <laughs> by the time standards, it's very silly. He looks like a snake-themed villain for some reason, but he's not, and it's so weird. He really does, yeah. It's giving like, like he should be called like King Cobra or something. Isn't that a DC character? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's very Serpent Society vibes or like um what's that team with all women and they're all snake themed as well? Or is that just the ultimate serpent society? I think that's the ultimate serpent society <laughs> that I'm thinking of. That was probably drawn by Greg Land. Anyway. Probably. But yeah, started as a very silly 60s villain. And in this book, he is completely redone. 
he basically just wears a suit. The way that the character has been reinvented here is that he's still opportunistic, still criminally and financially inclined. So he still has that sort of tie to trying to use his powers to get rich. That was his motivation in the 60s story was it wasn't like political crime for sake of ideology it was i'm gonna steal these documents so i can ransom them for money and in this story he's essentially become a drug lord because he is essentially working on gaining a monopoly on the mutants power giving drugs in this story part of like the lead up before the X-Men even get to fighting him partway into the events here is that he's sort of competing with other drug cartels and intimidating and murdering until his group has basically a chokehold on the manufacturing and distribution of these drugs. And he is giving them more or less exclusively to young people who are taking it at raves, like late night raves away from the eyes of their parents and from the authorities, just vulnerable young people basically wanting to get a quick high and who are specifically interested in the mutant aspect of it all. Because again, the mutant cultural element is there, which is sort of an interesting idea here and the type of thing that is only possible when your metaphors are kind of like messy and sci-fi, you know, like the X-Men are of just like, oh, this minority has powers. What if we fuck around of people wanting to become them? And, you know, that sort of base idea has been done throughout franchise history, you know, like new X-Men will do sort of interesting things with that thread of the human around this time as well. But yeah, he's taking over the drug trade for these power-giving drugs. He's stamping out the competition, drugging young people, and essentially we open up the book with the X-Men investigating all these recent deaths, specifically the deaths of the partygoers whose bodies have not been able to withstand the strain of the drugs. And it's basically them splitting up into teams to analyze and figure out where the drugs are coming from. As we have Chamber and Stacey X sort of like attending one of the actual raves and watching the distribution go down there while Iceman and Wolverine go to Cuba to talk with drug pushers there and try to figure out who's hurting who, what's happening with these cartels. And Nightcrawler and Archangel are sort of team leaders who are moving around trying to get information on the drugs like they early on meet up with Nick Fury to see what he knows and they will procure like samples of the drugs that they'll have provided to beast 
back at the mansion so that he can analyze what's going on and give the nice like comic book science gobbledly gook explanation of the genes are going in here and they do this to the nucleus and blah 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 and throw around like atomic wards that don't make real world sense but are basically just saying these things fuck up a human body because choosing to mutate your body at a rapid pace is probably not a good idea what i really love about vanisher in this is that it's taken the idea from like other comic books of those crime lord characters that the heroes can't do anything about like um kingpin and is like okay so what's the reason that like the x-men aren't able to stop this crime lord and the answer is because every time they get to him he just disappears and that's just such a like it's just such a it, it's such a funny like insane pull to do to pull the vanisher out of nowhere i mean i'm sure he'd been in stuff and he's a stan and jack character so like he'll have been in other things since because all of them have like apparently even the looter from spider-man who's a stan and steve ditko character was like used in other things which shocked me outside of that first issue yeah the vanisher but, um, had definitely appeared at other things before this but i didn't feel the need to like describe them the way i did x-men number two because frankly none of them mattered yeah this the reimagining him it's actually quite frightening because there is just the idea of like well if he's got something going on somewhere else he can just pop over there like it's a really cool like idea of like using a teleporter as a crime lord as well like that's not a power set you would normally associate with the guy who is organizing everything but then it makes sense like he of course he could have an international crime syndicate he could be anywhere on the planet instantly he's got an advantage over all the other crime lords exactly it doesn't matter where he sets up he doesn't need a home base even because his home base will just be you know wherever and then he can be somewhere else entirely he's really he's impossible to track down because his movements are entirely unpredictable like, it's a really good idea to use this character in this way. I also feel the need to comment that in this Wolverine shaves his head? Question mark? He does, yeah, as part of his, like, disguise. And he, like, has a line to Bobby because it's him and Bobby in Cuba. And he's just like, I've been here before. They know me. They'll expect me in a hat, but they won't expect me bald. <laughs> And Bobby is just like, now point to your head and say, to me, my X-Men. That was a good bit. Um, I am confused as to why Wolverine didn't just put on an eye patch. That's what he normally does when he wants to be unrecognizable. They must know Patch in Cuba. So he's he's gotten into something as both Logan and Patch in Cuba. And now he's like, well, now what the fuck do I do? I, I'm, I'm assuming his hair heals like the rest of him. Because... At no point in my reading of New X-Men does he show up bald. Yeah, I think there's a throwaway line, too, that's like it grows back really fast. But just the image of in my head of, like, bald Wolverine walking around Cuba is great. Yeah. To go back to the Vanisher, everything you said 100% seconded, like, just really intelligent use of his power set really effective way to bring this irrelevant silly character 
to the forefront in a way that makes sense and actually is intimidating. And I love the aspect you pointed out of just like, here's a kingpin type character. Why can they never pin him down? Oh, yeah, because there's no pinning this bitch down. And beyond just the power aspect of it, too, I think that the money aspect of this is also quite well done and that in this story he's like the epitome of someone who is a member of an oppressed minority essentially saying fuck you i got mine and aligning himself with just horrible moral actions and trades for his own personal benefits, not giving a shit about exploiting members of his own group because these drugs are naturally getting the mutant DNA from actual mutants. And most specifically, he has, quote, a fifth cousin with a penchant for gigantism. So a fellow mutant a literal relative who he just has either zombified or I think there was a line that gave the impression that this character might have already had some sort of mental disability. But point being, this character is completely and totally exploited, has no agency over their actions in any way, and is essentially this naked giant who they have positioned with whatever like air mask or whatever but like they just keep him like in a fucking swamp or a lake or whatever it is and we just get all these like haunting shots of like people going down and like drilling into his spine i think there's a line at some point that said something along the lines of like the best DNA being like in the bone marrow of the spinal column or something like that. A lot of the great visuals are just like of the horror of this giant underwater, like getting drilled into his back. It's fucked up. There's an episode of um, the Doctor Who spin-off Torchwood where a bunch of people have a giant alien whale essentially in a warehouse and it's got like rapid healing. So they're just using it to mass produce meat, but they're slicing off of it in chunks to sell. And this reminded me of that. That episode was actually called just meat. It's pretty messed up, but most of Torchwood is. Um, This is an entirely random aside, but I really love the club. Specifically that they have this giant Magneto helmet that initially looks like it's a projection, but like you see it from several angles later on. So, like, no, this club just has a giant Magneto helmet that they have hung from the ceiling as decoration. I really love the visuals of the club, too. It's like, most of it's rendered in this sort of electric purple that stands out against, like, the whites of the margins in those pages and against, like, a lot of, like, the tans in the other scenes that they cut back and forth. And that Magneto helmet is really fucking cool. 
I also wasn't really sure like, oh, is this a projection? But with the amount of angles and everything, it's like, yeah, I suppose maybe this is just like a literal light fixture of Magneto's helmet. But it's just such a bold scene of here's a bunch of fucking humans who are really interested in mutant culture as sort of like a fad that they are drugging themselves underneath of the symbol of Magneto. A guy who at this point in X-Men history would really have liked to see them all dead. Yeah. Because this is like the Morrison Magneto is is just the Magneto of like right before Morrison took over as well. Like he was crucifying people and stuff, which is a very strange choice to have Magneto crucifying people. Very strange choice to have him doing that. But like he was doing all of that shit like before Morrison took over anyway. I think there's a general, maybe largely even unconscious, just sort of gravitation in a lot of American writers to just fall into Christian imagery and ideas, whether they're Christian themselves or not, and just sort of impose those on more or less any character and never take the time to be like, maybe this is kind of weird to do this with Jewish characters and just do this across the board. It is very weird. Yeah, I think the story is that, like, he he crucifies Xavier, which is just hilarious, because I guess that makes Xavier Jesus, which, yeah, that's a take. <laughs> yeah. The man who, in issue two, wiped this guy's mind so thoroughly that he doesn't remember even who he is. Is that the first time Charles Xavier was a total asshole, or is there something even earlier in X-Men 1 that I'm not thinking of? I think it's a larger example of like being more of an asshole than anything before it, but even just his first panels, it is immediately like, oh god, what a douche of a teacher, because he's just such a jackass to the students, just constantly being like shut up i'm talking shut up i guess there is the whole premise of setting up a school filled with like children that you have in your paramilitary organization <laughs> but yes so on the topic of the art in the club sequences um i will say going through this the second time because i've only i only read this the once to prep for the episode the coloration is making it a lot more clear where we are at any given point but i will say that the one problem i have with the art generally is that while it is objectively brilliant shit like this is so cool it looks great because of its stylization the way that it's colored the way that like there's a lot of silhouette work done and a lot of sketchy lines uh, whenever you are seeing something that looks more like traditional line work, it's still very, like, Sienkiewicz-y in terms of the line work, not the way that it's colored, necessarily, but there's, like, that sort of style going on whenever it isn't the more sort of faded graphical forms. It can be hard to tell who is in a scene, 
and like who they're talking to. Um, like we talked about this earlier, but like the opening of the book where they're talking to Nick Fury, it took me until the third page to realize that Nick Fury was actually the other person in this scene because while it looks fantastic and it's really like cool interesting looking art and I don't think the storytelling is bad in terms of like the panel layouts and what we're being shown this level of stylization on it is to the point where like okay well I know that's Angel because that shape has wings and I know that's Nightcrawler because that shape has a tail but ordinary humans I'm like could be any of them it's not helped by Logan shaving his head, which means that now he and Ice Up Iceman look very similar because they both look like bald humans. Yeah, that's fair. I think I had maybe a little bit less of an issue with it, like with the Nick Fury example, but I do think that's a fair point. I think especially there will be like some panels where just the way that events are angled or the choice of like how to zoom in on characters definitely can have some clarity issues. I think Angel is one of the main perpetrators for me because if his wings aren't on panel, then he really has nothing distinguishing him from any other male character, which that may also be part of it too. And just that there's only one woman in this entire comic you know, so they're all dudes, and they largely all have fairly similar looks, depending on the angle. You know, like, if you crop yeah. out Warren's wings, then depending on the panel, him, Logan, and Bobby all fit the same sort of general build, you know, like slight differences but not really stark enough to avoid confusion in some points the most visually distinct looking male in this book is beast and he's on two panels you know it is a bunch of similar build white guys talking so i think that's definitely fair there's a few points for me too where i'm like you know, like, I reread it, and I find it, and I know what's going on, but there are definitely some, like, first looks where I also was like, who's talking here? Yeah, it's it's not a game-changer. Like, I still really like the issue. I think it's also the coloration. For example, at this point in time, I'm pretty sure, at least, isn't Warren still blue? He is, but you would never know it in this comic. Yeah, because it's just not colored that way. Like, the, the way that this comic is colored is such a way that basically each location has a different color wash on it. Which is nice, because it does mean I can actually tell the locations apart, when a lot of the time they look sort of like smoke-filled rooms with a lot of volumetric lighting going on. And, you know, that looks the same in the scenes in Cuba as it does in the scenes in the nightclub. But luckily, we have the distinct coloration. But... Well, I think this art is great, and I love seeing this kind of art in comics, especially like seeing a big two X-Men comic get doing this. Whenever this does happen, I'm always delighted. I feel like maybe this is the wrong plot for this art, because it does involve groups of two characters splitting up and going to different locations, 
and it's like a complicated crime investigation plot, which isn't necessarily how I would want that to be drawn, at least in terms of like telling that story more efficiently. But then on the other hand, the like the vibe of the story is so heavily driven by the art. Like the nightclub scenes are so effective, especially the scene where the kid takes the drugs and like gets he gets sore on wings. And it wouldn't be nearly as good with just about any other art style. Either like the way the club is lit or the way that the figure, you know, deforms and shifts into this like sort of bat winged like I can't think of like certainly in early 2001 like you know, I I would want this drawn like this because this is really cool and really special and unique but then I'm also like man I wish we just had like a story set in one place and that our six main characters looked more different like if Wolverine still had his hair then he would look very distinct in every single panel because his hair is such a signifier but like sort of the way that the art and the story work together to like remove some of these like visual signifiers that we're used to you know because most of these characters have like something really unique about them because they're drawn by so many different people so they all need like oh wolverine's hair nightcrawler's blue warren's blue but it's a very different blue you know bobby is probably going to be iced up if you're going to do a like story where it's not like about him stuff like that is all sort of just not in this that's fair it's like i think i might be a bit more into it um it's like i don't necessarily really disagree with anything you're saying i think i might just be like bothered to a smaller extent i think it could certainly stand to have like a bit more emphasis on characters individual little flair you know because like we've sort of got two different styles of rendering juxtaposed against each other to create the overall aesthetic you know with the sort of more like inky sketchbook style characters in some portions and then just like the really lovely but like disturbing sort of painted washes and everything and yeah I think like character definition really just kind of varies based on like the angles used because like early on say when they're talking to Nick Fury and we get like these little sketchy versions of the characters you know like there's a lot of emphasis on showing nightcrawler as a tail angel has these wings you know and like in those moments they're well differentiated but there are definitely some scenes throughout where that's less the case a bald wolverine probably being the main offender and yeah i guess i basically agree with everything else you said um i don't really even disagree with it i just I'm willing to forgive a lot because I just love the style so much. Oh, I mean, I think it looks fantastic. Yeah. As I said, I'm really glad that, like, you you don't get to see this kind of art in big two comics very often. So it's really cool getting to see this. Yeah. And that art really is, like, the reason that I picked this story. Because, like, 
I suppose, like, the art combined with the landscape format and, you know, like, the sort of utilization and mixture of those two things, it's just such a unique aesthetic experience to read that it really sticks out in my mind and I love this single issue, you know, because it's just such an interesting and unique visual compared to what most superhero comics get to look like. On the note of visuals, I do also want to briefly mention just a shout out to the two-page spread that takes place when Bobby is describing to Logan the X-Men's initial fight against the Vanisher. And it's the sort of like gray double-page spread where we get to see like the Vanisher versus the original X-Men in front of the White House. And just the sort of callback to those classic 60s aesthetics, but in like uniforms, but rendered in Ashley Wood's unique style. And there's also specifically included in the background this very specific X logo that is the way that the X was originally rendered in the original X-Men logo, like on the covers. It's just like a fun little nod to the original 60s stuff, which I like in general how the issue sort of plays with that, you know, like there's not like a really big dive into it or anything but we do have just little lines of dialogue of the Vanisher, like acknowledging, recognizing Warren and Bobby as people that he's fought before and him sort of like having an added level of grievance and resentment to them compared to the rest of the X-Men because he remembers them beating his ass and therefore he is all the more out for revenge with those two. I really do love that that two-page spread. Um, the X made me very happy to see. I really love the re- brief return of uh, Snowball Iceman. Snowball Iceman is always delightful to see. The, like, very rare times that we just get, oh, yeah, remember when Iceman used to turn into, like, just a clump of snow rather than, like, a proper ice ball? I feel like it would be really hard to make work but I would almost want to see a modern artist try, even if just a joke for an issue, just have Bobby fucking snow up and be like, I can do this too. (laughs) Just a fun little nod to how weird he originally was. That would be like a fun joke, or like if he's particularly anxious or something and he's having a hot, because the ice form is like harder to do, I think, than the snow he like learns how to do it later so if he's having like uh, issues with his anxiety again or something doing that as like a visual like note for that would be a cool choice he does have a solo coming up they should they should bring back snowball Iceman for a bit for whatever reason i would rather see that than the current uniform which is at the very least on still on cover three so (gasps) yeah and i feel real bad for the cover artists on that book because man that suit does not suit his art style at all 
fair art style. Actually, I don't know the name. Of, I don't know for the artists, but like, it doesn't look good. It's not. I don't even think it's their fault. It's a bad outfit, but like, it's also just not a good fit, artist wise, for that look. What they're going for, I think, especially with that outfit design. Yeah, it's just. I imagine a nightmare artistic assignment. Like, you know, we talk about some things working better and some art styles than others. And that's always a thing. But with that outfit, especially, it's like, we're not going to get anything cool out of this. As I said, there was a Pepe LaRosse drawing of it that I looked up from the uh, the X-Men run where Iceman was on the team. And that looked bad. Yeah. That's that's something real special. It's um, maybe the only time I've disliked something he's drawn. <laughs> yeah. While we're sort of talking about aspects of the art, we've hit on a lot of like the really cool moments with the way color washes are used for like the different settings. And stuff like that. And we hit on the Vanisher, like classic 60s two-page spread. But I want to just make sure to mention a few other specific things. Um, Early on when they visit the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier and they're talking with Nick Fury, they go and see one of the bodies of one of the now-deceased people that took the drug. And it's these two-page spread where the characters talking are like rendered in these little like cube square grids over top of the main image behind them. And it's just this really harrowing view of this body where we get like the head down through about the navel and we see like the upper half of the face, but no mouth. And we see all of these holes through the torso. But it's just harrowing, you know, like the sheer like size and depth of them is like beyond what one would expect from like a standard bullet. So it's just like all the more mangled and just like, my God, there's like so much flesh missing. And the painting here is this, like, eerily beautiful, like, blue-gray, which, on one hand, I guess kind of helps keep the horror palatable, because you're not seeing, like, the blood and flesh tone, you know? Like, it's not realistically colored in that way, so it sort of helps make the image actually stomachable, but it's still just like a really strong horror image for me. And both in that scene and then at other places throughout, I just really love all these places where Ashley Wood uses little like mini grids, you know, just like these brief like square progressions of panels and of events. I think there's just like a sort of fun variance in the geometry of layout throughout that I think helps keep things exciting. Yeah, I really like the um 
the sequence where Nightcrawler beats up all the people who are experimenting on Wolverine because they've got him like strapped down to that machine to get stuff from his spine. And it's just this 12 pa- panel grid on one page. And each panel is essentially a close-up moment of just like this brief moment in the action. It's really very good action, like in a comic. And, and the pacing is like spot on. It's a really cool little sequence of Nightcrawler just beating up on some guys. Yeah. It's really fun use of like the constrained space of just like here's all these mini little square shots of the action showing just like each individual bamf with various zoom ins on like his knuckles against a guy's back or things like that. And it's a lot of fun to look at. Before we wrap up, um I also want to just briefly touch on and ask what you think of the team dynamics here because we sort of laid out up top like who's here, but we haven't really talked a lot about the character beats, which this is mostly like a plot heavy book, you know, like this isn't like a deep character dive, but I do really enjoy just the brief little dynamics that we do get of the X-Men interacting with just sort of like Stacy and Chamber being the newbies and Stacy having a little bit of like a teasing personality and then with Bobby and Wolverine the Cuba sequence they're largely like a buddy cop movie duo with like Bobby is good cop to Logan's bad cop you know and just you know like the plot moves things forward and there's not really like extended like character analysis but I just like what little bits of personality we do get yeah, like, the joke from Bobby at the beginning about Bald Wolverine, where he needs to, like, do a Charles Xavier impression is really fun. Um, I quite like the Stacey X chamber dynamic. Yeah, it's interesting to sort of get, like, instead of just having, like, say, like, one Kitty Pride of, like, one newbie, it is kind of fun to have, like, a pair of them who are sort of stuck, like, dealing with one aspect of the plot while the big guns are diving into more immediate trouble. And they have just like moments throughout of just being like, and they expect us to be able to deal with this. And Chamber is also just seems like the more quiet, reserved one while Stacy is more like humorous and talkative, I suppose. She seems yeah, I like... less anxious. It, the dynamics really interesting because like while chamber has because of his time with generation x more experience with like the superhero bullshit stacy obviously has a lot more life experience than chamber because she's like not a teenager i I mean she's also been like a sex worker for probably several years so she has more life experience than probably just about anyone who's gonna like show up in one of these and i like that that's the sort of split where, like, they're both newbies, but they're newbies in very, very different ways. Like, it's not two teenagers on the team. It's a teenager who's kind of used to superhero stuff, but not used to this sort of structured team dynamic, necessarily. Or to, like, being on missions, because that's not Generation X shit just sort of happened to them. 
the same way it used to just sort of happen to the New Mutants. And then you've got someone who is not used to any of the superhero stuff. But, like, Stacy's probably got a lot more experience. Well, probably got more experience with nightclubs. Yeah. Stuff like that. Like, and the criminal underworld in terms of just, like, the unfortunate, like, legalization problem when, you know, if you're a sex worker. She just brings such an interesting dynamic to the whole thing. I wish that they could write Stacy X in a way where they don't have to worry about the fact that Disney owns the company. Because, I mean, I would say I wish they'd bring her back, but she is she is back. She's been in stuff in the last couple of years. That's very back for an X-Men character who isn't, like, who, who's newer than 1991. If you've shown up in the last couple of years, you're doing quite well. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's, there's just no way to do this anymore. Like, this whole story, I think, just feels like something that you just wouldn't really get to do now. I'm not saying they don't do great stuff now, because they do, but not in this way. Yeah, like, definitely aspects of the way this is told, I think. They'd have to be tiptoeing editorially in a different way if they were able to do it at all. But... With that said, do you have any more notes or anything we didn't already cover you want to hit on before we wrap up? Nope, I just need to read the rest of this run, which, I mean, I will eventually. <laughs> yeah, I haven't yet either, but I am very much looking forward to it. And if the rest of it is remotely this interesting or even half this interesting, then I think it should be fun. But nonetheless, thank you all for listening, and bye. Bye, everyone. Be excellent to each other.